Welcome guys to the Revive Stronger podcast. I'm your host Steve Hall and we have another great guest here today and I'm, I might pronounce the name wrong but hopefully not too badly, Broderick Chavez, um, who is otherwise known as the Evil Genius um, and his company is the Evil Genius Sports Performance. Um, and I don't know a great deal about Broderick um, but I do know he's a very bright individual and everything I've heard of of him and from him has been really, really fascinating, interesting, and really easy to digest and understand. And I know Mike looks up to him and he's a good friend of Mike and in fact coaches Mike for various elements. And we all know Mike and he's a very smart guy, so he's not gonna associate himself with kind of non-smart people. So I'm really, really looking forward to interviewing Broderick on the show. And I did wanna actually say there was, I did look on your website and looked at the About Me area and there was, an a bit in there that I really liked and before kind of going on air we talked and there was an element to this to your explanation of what you're about and kind of talking about that you wanted to be a singular outlet you didn't want to be sorry a singular outlet for truth but through thought experiment and dialogue bring us all a bit closer to the truth which I think was like brilliant I really really like that um, and Broderick works mostly with bodybuilders, powerlifters, and strongmen. So, a really good guest for us here today. So, anything else you wanted to add, Broderick? Um, anything kind of you want to make sure the listeners know about you? Well, first of all, I'm uh, very pleased to be here. Thank you for having me, and uh, thanks for your listeners for taking the time to be interested in what I might have to say. Um, you know, I mean, I can give you any background you want on me and how I arrived at this point, but roughly what you said is is it. I've got a lifetime background in this. Um, I was the rare and unusual individual where there was never a question in my existence what I was going to do with my life. At about age six or seven, something flipped in my little childlike mind, and I said, I I'm going to lift weights for a living. That's going to be my job. And all the adults chuckled, and that's really funny, good kid, whatever. And literally, I harassed and harangued them every day from that point forward to let me go to the gym and begin lifting weights. And uh, they acquiesced just after my 10th birthday. Uh, literally, Christmas Day, 1981, was the very first day I walked into a commercial gym. And it was, in fact, on Christmas Day, and the owner of the gym was there and training. And so Christmas Day, 1981, was the first time I weight trained in a commercial gym. Uh, he was an Olympic lifter, and I, not, not ironically, he was squatting. So that's what I did. So I squatted on Christmas Day, 1981, and have missed very few workouts ever since. Um, you know, I have a long competitive history as a bodybuilder, as a powerlifter, as a strongman. Um, I put all that somewhat secondary to actually who and what I am, simply because... Um, as serious as I was about competing, and I was on the international level as a as a powerlifter, and I was a national level bodybuilder, and actually considered quite the prodigy. Um, at no point did I really put the competitive concept of, or like the I want to be pro, uh, above just the fact that it was what I wanted to do, mm -hmm. and I really enjoyed the intellectual aspect of it. And to a large degree, I, I'm okay admitting this now in my adulthood. I'm 45. I've finally reached adulthood in my hmm. mind. Um, I found competing actually a bit of an annoyance. It interrupted my laboratory that was the gym. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed the being able to do things very repetitively and consistently, keep a lot of notes and make a lot of comparisons. And I always found that the, you know, two to four months a year that I had to break that 
to actually prepare for an event, I actually found frustrating. Mm -hmm. So you could see when I say that, you could look back and go, maybe I wasn't as serious about the competitive side as I led everyone to believe, simply because I was more interested in just going back to the gym and lifting more weights and playing playing Lab Rat with myself and others that would let me. And uh, that's an awful lot of how I uh, wound up with the moniker of Evil Genius. Is you know I, I made a lot of uh, a lot of behind the scenes and under the hood changes and adjustments. Uh, s- some intelligent, some not. But I have reams and reams of records about them. So, well, I think that's that speaks a lot to why you are as kind of bright as you are because you've got realms of experience, like or realms realms of experience so you've got a lot of experience you've been in the gym for so many years and the fact it's i think it's good that you've also have been competitive and then you help competitors because at least you've got that experience as well and if it's not your passion then i don't think pursuing that sort of thing is ever going to bring bring pleasure so i think no that's that's really cool and um i can't imagine squatting at 10 years old that is it's something incredible (laughs) Yeah, I and I you know, and I was very competitive. I won the teenage nationals in the United States at uh, age thirteen. You know, I had a two and a half time bodyweight squat, two and a half time bodyweight deadlift at thirteen. Wow! And I was I was good at it. I, I I mean not to downplay. You know, it's kind of weird. I don't want to sound overly arrogant. I, I mean, <laughs> I was very good at it and probably in the top one percent. You know, probably worldwide, but. I never really pursued it to the highest that I could mm-hmm. simply because my, my interests were elsewhere and always have been. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. and the, the other thing that I have as an advantage, if you will, is I had some really, really great and powerful associations. I got to spend an awful lot of time with uh, Tom Platts, mm-hmm. uh, Dr. Fred Hatfield, um, you know, uh, Rick Dale Crane, some of the very greatest uh, in their respective fields. So that also, you know, I mean, it was because I was who I was and I was welcomed into that community because I had something to offer. But again, a lot of people don't get that level of immersion that I did, especially that young. So mm-hmm. I, I have a bit of an advantage in that respect. No, I think I think it's good that, I mean, you're very humble about it because to be in the top 1% in the world is, that's some feat in itself. I think anyone would kind of, yeah, I mean, that's something to be very proud of. And I think, I mean, we all know who you associate yourself with makes a huge difference. Um, Agreed. It is, and it's great that you were able to do that. And I think a lot of people would have given for that. But the fact is you also pursued it and you were kind of after it and you've worked hard at it. It's not like it's just come to you. So. Oh, no, no, actually, um, you know, and to some degree that that is the... Uh almost the part I like about it is none of this, I, you know, I never had that, oh, uh, you know, just I train a little and I get really good. And, and mm-hmm. I see a lot of people like that with so much potential and they almost, it, it almost becomes so easy. They wander off and do something else. Well, you know, maybe a little more challenging or what have you. Um, no, it, it's, I, I'm very progressed. I mean, even now, 45 years old and I was in a very traumatic accident. I'm, I'm literally, I don't jest. I'm a cripple. Uh, there are days when I have a hard time walking. Um, e- even in this condition, uh, the first of the year, I squatted a, a probably, probably legal 700-pound squat, about 320K. Um, you know, I mean, I- I'm still really good at this, but again, it's been a 35-year adventure. You know, I'm 45. I started when I was 10. So, you know, it's taken half a century <laughs> to get to that level. But, uh, you know, 
it, and it's been a relatively smooth incline. I didn't have any, you know, ra radical, you know, I was really mm -hmm. great here and not so much. And, um, you know, but uh, like I said, that's not even the interesting part to me. The going to the gym and the lifting weights is the part I enjoy. Uh, the outcome is, is considerably less interesting to me. Just the way it is for me. I, I'm, I'm, I'm odd. I'm less, um, less reward motivated and just more motivated by the actual action. Mm -hmm. No, I think, I mean, that just goes to show that you put in the hard work. And I think the hard workers often are the ones who can offer most in terms of knowledge because they've had, to, they have, it doesn't just come to them. They have to actually like look things up and really yeah. work out what's actually working. So yeah, that's, that's a good thing. I think probably off topic and probably something you'll have to rein me in about a lot because <laughs> I do a off topic thing. But what you said reminds me something that uh, the great Tom Platt said, uh, I was at, a, at I was with him at a seminar he was giving, and I was literally five feet away when he said this. And I, at the time, I thought it was the strangest thing, and now I realize he knew exactly what he was saying. Is um, one of the very first questions. You know, he talked for an hour, and then there were open questions. And the first hand went up, and it was something about leg training. You know, how to squat this way, that way, whatever. And he he kind of like fluffed his hair because that was the thing he always did when he was frustrated. <laughs> his hair, and he's. He say, "Don't ask me about leg training." He said, D "Just don't even ask me." He said, "When you meet Robbie Robinson, ask him about leg training." <laughs> he said, "Robbie Robinson's had to bust his nuts and work to death to get the legs he's had." He said, "All I had to do was some squats and train really hard, and my legs got huge." He said, "Don't ask me about leg training." He said, "He said ask me about arm training," and and I thought that's the dumbest thing. I was like, "This guy's famous for his legs," and then I <laughs> came to realize what he was talking about is. Yes, he put a lot of hard work into it, but it wasn't intellectually challenging mm -hmm. to make his legs grow. He just had to do the work, and it, and he got the return. Now, when it came to his arms or his shoulders or something, he had to put a lot of thought and a lot of cleverness into getting the results that he had. And 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 I think that applies to what you're saying there. Is oh, just... completely. I think I good on Tom for being honest about it because there's yeah. so many people out there with these great genetics and they get asked how they did it and they're like, ah, oh, buy my book or something yeah, on those yeah. lines where they yeah. don't actually have the answer. They're just reaping the rewards for something that they had genetically. Agreed, agreed. Awesome. I think let's get into the actual topics, although I think people have enjoyed that chat regardless. Um, <laughs> what we wanted, well, what I wanted to get you on to talk about was kind of complementary training and nutrition periodization for a bodybuilder yes. or someone trying to kind of change their physique because I think a lot of people kind of, they get training periodization, but they just see kind of bulking and then cutting and they don't really know where these things go, where they align. They're just like, oh, I'll just bulk till I get fat and cut till I get shredded. And it's, where does that go with your training? Have you not thought about this? And a lot of people don't. So yeah, I think we're gonna kind of look over some kind of mesocycles as it were. So like a strength mm -hmm. mesocycle, uh, cutting mesocycle, massing mesocycle. Um, and whether it's strength, hypertrophy, those sort of things. Um, so if we want to talk about maybe get into a massing mesocycle, first of all, kind of trying to gain sure. muscle and how would you train kind of alongside that? Well, it's, it's interesting because to have this conversation, really, we need two other people in the room. Uh, we probably need uh, my good, both good friends of mine, ironically, um, Lyle McDonald and Mike Isratel. If we had those two here, and they would never exist in the same room, by the way. <laughs> That's a separate conversation. But if we did, if I could split my personality and play their role, um, you know, the first thing you know, Mike would say is mass training is all about volume. 
It's about escalating the volume of work you're doing to get a greater and greater anabolic stimulus. Yes. And I wouldn't argue that. Uh, I do think at times maybe he overplays that a little bit. But I think in general the concept is very, very sound that you know if you can do you know three sets of 10 and then in the future you can do four sets of 10, you're probably bigger. Yes. And five sets of 10, you're probably bigger and so on. And then Mike would also amend that you can only do that for a given a period of time before you lose, let's call it momentum. Yep. Biological systems tend to break down over time. Things become less efficient. So the, the, the concept is you're going to do ever-increasing amount of work, and there's a given time frame in which you cannot exceed uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. That's basically how periodization came to be. You're going to modulate a variable over a block of time, block periodization. Then Lyle would chime in and talk about how, because Lyle's con uh, background in education is considerably deeper in the biochemistry aspect of what's going on, Lyle would begin to um, point out that ever-increasing effort and volume of work has an ever-increasing requirement on energy consumption. You're going to burn more and more energy doing this work as you proceed. So if you, for instance, had a fixed set of calories, if you had 3,000 calories every week, as you're doing ever more and more work, you have less and less margin to power the recovery, the growth, the et cetera. So it becomes obvious to me, looking at what he's saying and looking at what he's saying is, if I have to do more work, I'm listening to Lyle, then I go, well, that means I have to have more fuel yeah. in parity to power that work within the same margins. Now, that also brings me to something a bit of... Um, uh, uh, thinking sideways and what have you, and, and this probably is the right time in the talk to bring it up, but you could also, if you didn't elevate your calories in, concor in concurrence with your energy consumption based on escalating volume, if you didn't have them in parity, you could achieve a state where as you're gaining size and strength, you would be forced to steal that energy from somewhere, i.e., probably stored energy, body fat. Mm -hmm. So this idea that you can't get leaner while while strength training or some of those things is, in my mind, very false. Now, I say very false in that intellectually it's possible. The practical application turns out that that's very much more difficult. Now, in the world where I live in, where there's exogenous pharmacology involved, that becomes ever more possible and relevant because drugs blunt an awful lot of the catabolic forces associated mm -hmm. with high volumes of training and things. Um, I realize that's not necessarily relevant to your crowd per se, but if you begin to understand the systems of this, this actions requiring energy and energy does X and Y, you can begin to see how there are differences and how training styles and methodologies might differ from natural to drug using simply based on concepts like that. Mm -hmm. If you can blunt the negative effects of high volumes of training, now you have extra abilities that regular people don't have. I think, yeah, that's that's definitely something, I mean, the listeners will know about the maximum recoverable volume concept and exactly. moving through these volume landmarks. And yeah, right. volume's one of the key, the key driver for hypertrophy over a given sufficient amount of intensity. And then something new probably to quite a lot of the listeners is the idea that you brought from Lyle McDonald about because your energy demands are increasing, then you need to increase what we're talking about as a surplus of calories, essentially. Otherwise, you're going to eat into that. Exactly. Your margin or your amount of surplus will ever be declining. So now you're trying to do more and more work with less and less extra energy to fuel it. 
And then secondly, something that I've taken from Lyle and a few others is um, people often think the story ends there. My, my, my daily energy consumption is X. My basal metabolic rate is X. And my workouts burn roughly Y. So I have X plus Y equals this new number. The problem is anyone who understands biology, and I don't say that subtly because unfortunately most people don't understand biology, for a moment leave the world of exercise and think about something that maybe you as a person, not as an athlete, but as a person can understand. Let's say a suntan. Okay, you go out in the sun, and what is happening is you, the sun is literally damaging, quite literally cooking your skin. The sun is like like putting it on in an oven. The sun is radiating infrared radiation out, and it's burning your skin, damaging you. Okay, that's not good. That's technically quite, in every essence, bad. Now, you leave the sun, your body now has the opportunity to deal with that damage deal with that quote stress there was a stress applied burn now the body comes in dismantles the damaged cells does some stuff and then repairs and this is where uh, actually people get a little confused even and i'm, I'm only going to brush on it because it's a, a nine hour lecture in itself <laughs> people have this belief that the body's kind of programmed to overcompensate super compensation you hear you know mm -hmm. you exercise and your body super compensates as if growth was the intended action the reality is that's not the case the way it works is your body starts repairing and doing these things that it does and um if you can imagine a bucket under a faucet you turn the faucet on the bucket starts filling up the off switch is not in the bucket the off switch is actually when the water hits the floor okay so the trigger the message the feedback loop to turn off the building process doesn't happen until all the building's done and there was a little overrun the bucket has overflowed mm -hmm. that's how the sunburn works that's why you get tanned all of the repair is done and then there's just a little bit more while the body's getting the message oh we've accomplished our goal and that little, little teeny bit of overrun as you were that's the suntan or that's the callus on your hand or that's the muscle growth. You go to the gym, you create damage, yeah. the body deals with the damage, and then doesn't get the turn-off mechanism triggered until there's been a little over-repair. That's the supercompensation. It's not like some divine right that you're programmed to have. It's just the consequence of a lag time in the feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Now, the reason I bring all this up, this complicated thing, is where I said most people think the story ends with the my basal metabolic rate, my workout costs this much, what they don't realize is all that stuff, the, the good stuff, the recovery, the compensation, and then even the super compensation, all takes place after the fact. And all of that is very energy intensive. So the actual cost of your workout could be three times the actual cost of your workout. If you burn 400 calories in the weight room, you might wind up burning 1,200 calories to recover, repair, compensate, and supercompensate yeah. over, protracted over time. So again, you got to go back to thinking about Lyle saying how energy-intensive biological processes are. You know, Mike's telling you you got to do volume, you got to do volume, and then Lyle's saying you got to fuel, you got to fuel. Then you come to me, and I'm saying, and then you have to fuel after that. So 
again, it's it's when you start compounding all this stuff, you actually find that if your training volume's on this ascent, your caloric in, intake actually has to be on this ascent because now, and you would think, no, no, they just have to be in parity, but here's the rub. Okay, you keep doing more and more volume, that keeps requiring more and more energy. But all the shit that happens after the fact is ever protracting further and further. So your calorie incline needs to be bigger to make this margin up here that's going to be spent on the backside. That's really so interesting. So escalation of, let's say, I'll just throw out round numbers, don't hold me to these, Mike <laughs> could give much better numbers. But if you had, to say, an escalation of volume of 10% per week, yeah. you might find your caloric increase is more like 15% per week. Okay. Because you need to keep pace with the volume, plus keep pace with all that complicated stuff you don't understand after the volume. Mm -hmm. And that also is part of why periodization becomes so relevant is because if you t just take a moment, you if you stop and think about that, eventually, if you could just protract that into the future, you would just do nothing but train and eat. There'd be no time to sleep or do anything and literally at some point you would be eating while you're training yeah and obviously that's just not r r rational so it becomes clear that at some point things have to be brought to a de-escalation a reset and then a re-escalation mm -hmm. not necessarily because you know mike needs to sell books or russians were really smart <laughs> or simply because it's logic if you think about it you're just like there's no way that can continue exponentially and on that line of thought with you're kind of talking about the the d the d load essentially um at I the end of that kind of deal i hate that word <laughs> i'll let you use it because it's your damn radio show but <laughs> I, I just i'm a language guy i i tend to believe that i speak well and i have a command of the language and d load is the stupidest fucking word i envision furniture movers you know <laughs> like some guy in like a business suit going all right you guys load this truck oh shit that was the wrong truck d load that truck it's, it's fucking stupid. It doesn't have anything to do with exercise. It fucking drives me insane. Yeah, I don't know where it's... I, I must have got it from, like, Jim Wendler 531 initially. Must have been the first time I ever saw it. <laughs> I, I, I attribute it to language barrier. I'm thinking it was probably some, some Eastern European that didn't have a solid command of English and couldn't think of a, a real word for that. So they just, <laughs> oh, we're talking about load, so we'll deload it. And it's, it's fucking dumb. But... <laughs> Anyway, so that's my own, my, my own little rant. I hate that word. Can I call it a taper? Is that a nicer way of saying it? Completely, yeah. You you know, you modulate variables. That's cool. all training. Is. You're modulating, you know, volume, load, and frequency. That's all you do. So we're we're bringing down volume, maybe some intensity during that kind of that week. Would you, mm -hmm. with nutrition, do you change that because obviously you're escalating volumes and then you've come down? Do you change the nutrition during that week? Well, again, you got to remember the, the little picture I drew. And, and again, pictures are very valuable. Don't be afraid, you and the listeners and everyone out there, don't be afraid to draw, just take a napkin and draw this shit out. And you draw this curve and you say, okay, this is my volume and this is my calories keeping pace with my volume and then my volume is going to drop. Well, all of those processes I talked about the, you know, the stripping away damage protein, the, the new escalation of protein, the pro, you know, fractional synthetic rate, and all the clever words that people go, they don't stop just because you stop going to the gym. You went to the gym yesterday and you don't go today. All that stuff's still going on. So you have to smooth out that curve to accommodate that window of biological activity. Just mm -hmm. because you're not doing it doesn't mean your body's not doing it. 
So basically, when and, and this is something that I make essentially make my living on, plus the introduction of pharmacology, is all of these things need to be sensibly integrated, and you have to have an understanding of what's going on while you're not looking. Yeah. It's kind of like that quantum mechanics thing. You know, is the cat alive or dead? Oh, shit, it's both. It's one of those deals, you know, Schrodinger's cat in a box. That was probably a way off target, but <laughs> anyway. So even though your training has truncated, your biological processes are still in play to make up for what's going on. So volume might do this curve, but then calories have to do a slightly extended curve to continue the processes. Because if you chopped off calories right when you chopped off training, you would be starved of the ability to make the, the necessary Mm -hmm. improvements you're trying to make so what you find out is you wind up with actually these kind of staggered curves where training's doing this but nutrition's doing that and everything looks like it's off it's off kilter a little bit but the reality is they actually line up perfectly in relation to what they're actually doing perfect and then same thing with pharmac pharmacology is you know were you to introduce that just to give you an idea of the the extra layer yeah. is if you take an injection of a slow-acting drug today, it's not necessarily working tomorrow because it's by definition slow-acting. So you have to have that strategically placed so that it's escalating in action, not in administration, but in action at the point of the action. Mm -hmm. And then you have to have the calories post-action. So you've got this step of the training happens, the pharmacology happens, the nutrition happens, and then maybe even some clever recovery shit happens. And this recovery way over here is relevant to this training session way over here. You, you see? Yeah. So that's the kind of things you need to begin to think is everything has a, 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 a duration of onset and a duration of release. And that has to be strategically placed to affect the thing you think you're affecting. Mm-hmm. Just no. like overtraining, people will get to a state of overtraining and they go, "Oh, I guess squatting, you know, three times this week was bad." And I'm like, "Well, what about the week before? And the week before? And the week before?" I think all of that somehow adds up to what happened today. And then they look at you with this really blank look. You know, it, it's not um, an analogy I use on a regular basis. And I'm going too too far too fast. Stop me. But. Um, the stock market, you know, you, you buy the local newspaper and you look at the stock market. And if you look at just one day or one week, it's just a fucking jagged mess of this went crazy yeah. and then it lost and then it gained. And then... But if you look at a month or three months or six months, all of those jagged peaks start to contract and you actually see a trend. Maybe it's not perfectly smooth, but you clearly see it's going somewhere. And then if you pull back all the way to like a decade, you see almost a perfectly smooth line that just does. And then, but same thing, you zoom into an hour and it's just ape shit, craziness. That's what we've got here mm -hmm. is we've got wild swings in volume and intensity, calorie load and everything. But if you pull out and look at a bigger picture, you really do see a pattern of escalation or de-escalation or homeostasis. Mm -hmm despite the radical changes, it's just like the people with their stupid, um, you know, calorie spikes or, or overfeeds or refeeds or whatever. Yeah. It's just calories over time. If you took all those stupid calories and smoothed them out over the week, it would be less exciting, but you would get exactly the same result because it's calorie over time. It's just like your paycheck. You get paid evenly over the week, 
But if you think about it, you're not actually getting paid hourly for every hour of the day all day long. You're really only getting paid for when you go to work. And that might be, you know, 10 hours this day and six hours this day and 20. But you get paid evenly and smoothly, even though the work wasn't even and smooth. Yeah. You didn't work 24 hours a day, seven days a week. But yet you get this smooth payment. That's the same thing you've got here is we've got all these wild protuberations that we're trying to get to give us a net average of some advantage. Mm -hmm. No, I, and we'll come on, actually, hopefully we'll get time to talk about refeeds because uh -oh. I think that'll be something you'll be able to kind of beat to death and that'll be really exciting. Something or I did, just be a stroke. <laughs> something I did want to touch on was you actually talked about, we know kind of we're accumulating this volume, but yes. we need to repair it in kind of the weeks following as well. Yes you see people go through kind of a mass straight into a cut. There'd be no transition or anything. Yeah, I think this is, you've kind of explained why, because they're just cutting all the, they're not repairing what they've just damaged. Yeah, it, it's, it, and this, this concept applies everywhere. You know, when you go out in the sun, you don't get the suntan in the sun, you get it after the sun. When you lift weights, you don't grow in the gym, you grow after the gym. And that, it's the same thing, you don't get paid when you're at work. You get paid at the end of the week. Yeah. You, you know, you don't get your tax money moment by moment. You get it at the end of the year. Everything, everything in all human endeavor and even even grander physics, every action, the result follows the action. That's you, 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 you never scream in pain and then the rock falls on your foot. It just doesn't fucking work that way. <laughs> Same thing here. You create this giant accumulation of, of volume you're not going to get the result until the volume is released and the body has the time to compensate. You might actually see incremental adjustments to that volume. That's called that's called accommodation. That's called yeah. adaptation. That's not actually the growth, the result, the, the bedrock progress. That takes place after the stress is released. That's fundamental biology, folks. That's literally, I realize many of your listeners are in other countries, but over here, that's like grade school stuff. That's sixth or seventh grade biology. You're supposed to be taught about Dr. Hans Seil and the general adaptation response. Um, you know, he wrote a seminal book in, Christ, I don't know what, it was in 1950, The Stress of Life. Um, you know, Something like that. To the gym and you've not read that book, shame on you. It's kind of like the outline of how all this shit works. Um, you know, really, really need to understand these real general systems. I think there's a, I don't know, you might have read it. I haven't actually read the book. I've got it. Um, Why Zebras Have Ulcers. I think, is that a related book about stress? I believe it's, it is meant to be quite yeah, a good one. I'm actually not familiar with that book. Um, the, the stress of life is literally um, just outlines that, how every positive action you think of in your day, from a suntan to a callus on your hand, um, to, to actually getting stronger is precipitated by a negative. Yeah. Your, your body's adaptation to a stressor. That's, that's all it is. That's what, hell, that's what losing body fat is. People act like it's some mystical, you know, thing only owned and understood by, you know, athletes. And no, it's just a general stress. The stress is the environment's not giving you any fucking food. You have to compensate somehow. It's by using the food you've stored previously. It's very, very simple. And so if we want to move into, we kind of talked about it a little bit there, you said kind of losing fat. 
when we are talking about losing fat, how does this nutritional and training kind of paradigm look different to when we're gaining? Because obviously when we're gaining, we're trying to feed that kind of muscle gain. Whereas when we're losing, we're trying to hold on to as much muscle as possible. So do we need to change things in the same way? How might that look? Well, again, here's the thing. And, and I get, I'm again, I deal largely with athletes and largely those athletes use drugs. So we get to get away with and implement strategies that quote regular people and even the most um, exceptional natural athlete is still falls into the bell curve of regular people. By definition, their body's not able to do anything supernatural. That's literally what drug use makes you. It makes you super above natural, you know. So I, I, I have a small smirk at my face at night when I just think to myself that, you know, I'm responsible for supernatural athleticism. I find, I find great, you know, gratification in that just because I'm an ass. But that aside, um, the principles are very, very uh, equal, but yet not completely opposite. It doesn't make sense, but yet it does. For instance, the example that I touched on, you could set up a mass cycle where your volume is accumulating, but fail to adapt the calorie content to it. Now, what would happen is you would have a diminished return on your mass gaining because you would have ever less and less fuel to do so. And that's absolutely accurate. But the body would strive to fill that calorie gap to its best ability. Where is the body going to get fuel from if you're not supplying it? There's only one answer, folks. That is stored fat. So, no, it's not the most efficient method. No, it's not the bring me into a contest in shape method. No. But, for instance, if you had a block of time where you wanted to gain some mass or certainly not lose mass but weren't wildly concerned with getting overly lean – that would be a scenario where you could implement. It's almost a hybrid of both things. There's a calorie deficit built into the background, if you will, but you're still training in a mass-type scenario. Mm -hmm. Now, somebody like Mike Isratel would say, no, 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 just do one or the other. You know, train for mass and then flip gears and then train for, you know. And <clears throat> what I find is that's just the the... That's just the architecture of a very, very structured mind. And I respect it, and I appreciate it, and I think that it's very valuable for most people. Mm -hmm. But you can also see that when you look at a Picasso, that's in a lot of talent, that's a lot of gift, and that's incredible artistic merit, but that's probably not a structured mind. That's not someone who probably follows the letter of the law and does everything exactly the way they were told to do it. They're like, no, I'm going to put big fucking blue swirlies right here because that's how I want it. That's kind of what I'm trying to show you here is you really only have some fundamental variables, calorie deficit, calorie expenditure, and time. And you are free to modulate them as you want as long as you understand the consequences that they're going to precipitate. No, what I just outlaid would not be the ideal mass cycle nor would it be the ideal fat loss cycle. But it is going to give you a combination of those two things over that given period of time. So really what it comes down to is you need to start a given cycle with a very specific understanding of what you're trying to do and then do it. Mm -hmm. it's, it's literally as simple as that, even though in practice that's not very simple at all. 
but the concept is that. No, I think that's, yeah, I guess a lot of us know kind of, I think a lot of people go for that body recomposition kind of trying to lose fat and gain muscle at the same time. And if anyone's done it, I think, I mean, there's, there's people out there and we know it can happen. And I guess yes. it's just the idea that it becomes more and more difficult and you have to be much Absolutely. more careful with things. Agreed. And it also is the reason why more and more people turn more and more to the use of pharmacology because it elevates all of those margins in such a way that then you really can do this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, but even though it's, let's call it a drug paradigm, there's nothing about it that doesn't relate to the natural athlete just on a much, much smaller, slower scale. You know, over and over the analogy I use, uh, um, and again, I'm in America, you're not. Um, everyone here is a car nut. Everyone's crazy about automobiles. We just got an automobile fetish. I don't. I don't know. Don't like them. Don't know them. I'm even a little scared of them. They're just <laughs> big, dangerous, complicated things that fucking wreak havoc. But anyway, Americans are car crazy. And in light of that, the analogy I use is the difference between drug using and non-drug using is if you showed up to the famous automobile race, you know, the, the whatever 5,000 or whatever, and all the racers showed up in the family station wagon. It would still be a race. It would still follow all the same rules. And there would still be some exciting moments because they're great drivers. And they would do their racy whatever. The difference is the whole thing would take place at about one-third the velocity. Because they're not fucking race cars. Yeah. And that's basically what we have between drug use and non-drug use. It doesn't make you give you superpowers that you could do something regular people can't. It just lets you do everything bigger, faster, and stronger than regular people can. But you still have to abide by the same laws of physics and biology. Brilliant. And in in this line of thought and the speaking of, we're talking about in both scenarios, we're accumulating some sort of fatigue um, with both. Is there a certain length that, that they have to be like a maximum length that you believe they can be like a number of months or mesocycles that they should go for? And then you have to get rid of this fatigue or how do you view that? Well, ideally, I mean, the whole concept of your stupid fucking deload and what have you. Um, I, ideally, it's a it's a jagged line. You know, when you're talking about the stock market, it's accumulation and a release or at least partial release and an accumulation and partial release and so on. So it's not as if you're ever dragging this bigger, bigger, bigger body of fatigue because that's um, in, in biological terms what leads to extinction. Right. You, you, you don't survive that. You know, you could tolerate stress to an extraordinary point, but unfortunately there is a moment where the next step is termination. So um, everyone wants to argue, you know, what's the ideal length for a cycle or a mesocycle or a series of them? And unfortunately that comes down to factors. Mm -hmm. It's not hocus pocus. It's not this, you know, everybody's a delicate snowflake. You have to find out what works for you because that's just fucking stupid. It makes me want to just strangle people. <laughs> everybody follows the same biological rules. The difference is not everybody has the same starting point and tools in which to work with. So your age, sex, race, genome, um, how hard you are actually training, not how hard you think you're training, mm -hmm. but how hard are you actually training? How hard are you actually dieting? All of those things add up to a rate of accumulation in terms of the stressor. In some people, they're either very, very weak on the genetic side and they run out of room very quickly, 
or they're very, very high on the effort side, and they're working so hard, they run out of abilities quickly. Mm-hmm. Other people have great genetics and can continue much further, or they're literally lying to themselves, and they're not training nearly as hard as they think, and they can travel much further. So the length of time is really just, a, a, again, analogy to finance. It's how quickly are you spending your money? That's going to determine when you run out of money. How much did you have to start with, and how quick are you spending it? Mm-hmm. And that literally is the is the determinant on when you got to go back to work. Mm-hmm. It, it, there's nothing more to it. You know, you guys have those long protracted vacations. You know, how, what do you do? You sit at the beginning of the vacation. You go, oh, I got this much money, so I could spend this much each day. All right, and then you go forth. That's it. That, yeah. that, you, and you don't get a different answer. You can't change your mind along the way or whatever. You know, you set out with a plan, and that's it. Same thing here. Now, I can give you some vague bell curve guidelines, and those would be, again, because of like I talked about how the action proceeds, you know, the result precedes the action and all of that, probably anything shorter than four or five weeks, and you really haven't had time enough to accumulate anything, much less get a result. Yeah. And then in the same response, probably something in and around the 20-week range is where actual fatigue within the system begins to manifest. Mm -hmm. So I would say that your rough ballparks on that is somewhere between the five and 20 week range, probably with the average being what most people average it out at 10 to 12. I I accept that. But again, there are, you know, like any genetically predetermined bell curve, there are midgets and giants, you know, they're still people and they still abide by all the same rules, but just, they're just completely different shit ends of the spectrum. Mm-hmm. we got here you know if your you know recovery is the genetic midget obviously everything all your curves are going to be shorter you know and if your recovery is the genetic giant obviously your curves are going to be much bigger but they're still roughly within the same parameters or you would be a different species mm-hmm. thank you for listening to part one of this two-part episode with broderick chavez hopefully you've enjoyed it so far it was incredible the amount of information that that broderick came out with talking about eating for muscle growth and also for fat loss and kind of talking about deloads and things like this in this second part series we are going to be talking more about bodybuilding specifics so how should your contest prep look like how should you attack peak week Uh, and all of that good stuff. We get deep into refeeds as well and what their application should be for a physique athlete. So cheers, guys. Take care, and we'll talk to you soon.